This morning we'll read from Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 27 through 30 this morning. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Living Worthy of the Gospel. Look with me at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer For his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, I'm going to start by making a very, very obvious statement up front. Okay, here it is. There is no one on earth, there has never been anyone on earth who has ever been worthy of salvation. The fact that God has saved any of us is a great grace, and it's a miracle. Jesus came to save sinners. Why is no one worthy of salvation? Because that that goes against the whole gospel message that we love and preach and sing about. He came to save sinners who did not deserve salvation. They deserved condemnation. They deserved God's justice, His wrath. His punishment for their sins. 
He came to save sinners. That's great news. That's who he came to save. Sinners who could do nothing to save themselves. Because the wage of sin is death. That, that is what they've earned for their, their works. Death. No good deeds can make up for bad deeds. That's typically the, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, yeah, yeah, for my sins, but I've done some good things too. And I would just say, in what court of law does that pass, right? Judge, I know, I know I'm guilty of, of murder, but here's the deal. I've also done some kind, good deeds in my life too. Well, guess what, son? You're not here for your good philanthropy. You're here because you're guilty of murder, right? How much more in God's courtroom where there'll be true justice? You can't bribe that judge. Can't do it. The scripture actually legitimately, specifically says you can't bribe God with your good deeds. And then he goes even further. It says our good deeds, our best day is like a filthy rag. Our best is like that. The only way, the only way that a person will come to Christ is if and when that person, by God's grace, has their eyes of their heart opened, that they're enlightened to see that they are, oh no, a lawbreaker of God's law. That they are, oh no, a criminal. And that justice is on the horizon when Christ returns on Judgment Day. That's the only way someone will realize their sinful state is if God makes them aware of it, that they are totally helpless, totally hopeless, totally desperate for something. That something is God's mercy. That's what they need. They don't need more time. They don't need more time to get themselves figured out and straightened out. They need God's mercy. They need it now. They need it right away. And that's what God has done in sending His Son to die on a cross that we deserve. And only when you realize that you're a lawbreaker before a holy God will you ever cry out for mercy, will you ever receive that great mercy, and will you ever begin to live for Christ and glory in His cross and even endure suffering, proclaiming it to the world around you. It's very evident when this miracle happens in a person because their life is different. They're literally a different person at that point. It's like getting into a car accident that is like fatal and now there's a dead person on the scene and a new person resurrects and is alive. It's a different person. It's a new creation. And so it's very evident when that's taken place. They no longer are living for themselves. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Life is about Jesus and his gospel and his church and reaching the lost world. That's the evidence of someone who has come alive. In Christ. In short, they respond to the great forgiveness of God by joyfully living a life worthy of the gospel. Not perfect, but one that's pursuing the honor of God. Remember last week we talked about what honor means? It means to make large something. To honor someone is to make them large. It is to become less and for them to become more. And so to honor Christ is to make much of Christ in our lives in many different spaces in many different ways. To joyfully live a life worthy of the gospel. And that is what Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers at this time in history, for these particular people, for these believers, 
that they would quote verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is important to remember that he's addressing not just an individual, he's addressing a a specific local church. He's addressing a community of believers that come together to worship the one true God. And so what components, what, what are the components of a church like us? of living worthy of the gospel together as a body. There's three that I see in this text right here, three components of living worthy of the gospel. Here's the first one, that a church is standing together. They're standing together. Look at verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a great loyalty to the gospel here. They're standing firm. They're standing together with loyalty to Jesus and his gospel. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And Paul's not suggesting, once again, that we earn God's favor. That goes against the gospel, right? He is saying that our lives should be consistent with our lips, that our profession of faith, that our walk should match our talk. That's all he's saying here. And this is an appropriate command. Because in context, as we read uh, last week in verse 21, he says to live as Christ. And if you're living for Christ and life is Christ, then your life will more and more be worthy of the gospel. The phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, can also literally be translated as only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Citizens. It's very interesting because this theme of citizenship, it repeats itself in Philippians 3 verse 20 where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you know we have dual citizenship. Or maybe you didn't know. But if you're in Christ, you have dual citizenship. We are first and foremost a citizen of heaven, awaiting our final salvation, the the consummation of our salvation when Christ comes, establishes a new heavens, new earth, judgment takes place. But we're also citizens of a temporary nation, right? We are citizens of the United States. So there's dual citizenship. He's basically saying you belong to a heavenly people. And so as you are a citizen of whatever country or nation on earth behave as heavenly citizens. Very simple. The Philippians, they they prided themselves on their citizenship. They were a part of a Roman colony. And so they had all the honor and the, the privileges and the prestige of being a Roman citizenship. This, this made them different from some of the, the places around them. And I think that we as Texans, we understand a little bit what that's like. We can relate to the Philippians a little bit, you know, because the stars and stripes are big and bright, deep, deep in the heart of Texas, right? I'm not from Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. I'm proud of it. I pulled for the Cowboys, started this year, gave it a little time, didn't know I'd be bandwagoning on a good year, but here we are. You can thank me for it later. I might be the good luck charm. All right, moving on. Paul reminds the Philippians 
that they should look to Christ, not Caesar, for how they should behave. It's interesting. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And this isn't speaking to an individual. Again, this is second person plural. He's speaking to the whole church. He's saying, y'all be worthy of the gospel. Y'all Philippians. How can we do this well at Christ Redeemer Church? As a church. Well, we can seek to get to know one another very well. That we can know how we can support and encourage and pray for one another. That we can challenge one another to continue to progress in the faith and joy that's in Christ. To grow in maturity and sanctification by pursuing Christ in His Word and in prayer and in the fellowship of the saints. We can hold one another accountable to trust and obey Christ, all that He commanded. It demands that we're engaged in one another's lives. That we don't just show up on a Sunday morning and then disperse, but that we actually are a part of one another's lives. We are spurring one another on to love and good deeds for the glory of Christ. We just kicked off our small groups this past week. Uh, and this is, again, another shameless plug, right? If you're not in one, you should consider jumping in one. Um, there's, we've got several. That's a great context to, to obey this. Paul encourages the Philippians to have integrity in their gospel living. He says, do this so that, look at the text, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Integrity is crucial in the Christian life. Integrity is simply this. It's being the same person in private that you are in public. Paul repeats this plea for integrity later on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's be honest. Let's just be real honest for a second. How easy is it to put on a face? Like short term, put on a face on a Sunday morning. Okay? It's so easy. And then we go off and then I don't know what the rest of the afternoon on Sunday looks like for you or evening. I don't know what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday look like for you. But it's so easy to put on a front and then walk away and be something different. And he's saying, don't do that. Be consistent. My goodness. It's so easy to go on a first date and put your best foot forward and everything seems amazing for both parties. Wow, this is the very best for these two people. And then you go home and you're someone totally different that week until the second date. And then long term, once you get married, you realize, holy cow, this person's a sinner too. Huh. And they realize the person I married is a sinner too. And you grow in sanctification together with more integrity and honesty. My son, when we're feeding him dinner and I'm present, sometimes I'll turn my back while he's eating. Sometimes I'll go into the room, another room for a second to grab something, come back. And you know what he tends to do while I've got my back turned towards my, my boy? He tends to take that which he doesn't prefer on his plate and he puts it on the floor. And he's gotten so smart, he, he no longer puts it in front of his tray. He puts it to the side and behind his tray. Okay? So if you don't believe in, you know, sinful by nature, you know, children will prove that to be true. But here's, here's what he did. He'll do this. And, uh, and so I'll have to come back and I'll, I'll discipline him and talk to him and say, look, this goes in your mouth and on the floor. Your mama made this for you tonight. 
Uh, but what he's doing is he's trying to put this away so that he can get what he wants, which is dessert, which is fruit for him. Don't be like that, is what I'm saying. You know, for, for a little 16-month-old boy, it's like, oh, that's cute, that's funny. But when you're a grown person and you operate the same way with your Christianity, it's not funny, it's shameful. It, it demands repentance, sincere, vulnerable repentance, and faith in Christ. Third John, chapter, uh, verse 4 says this, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that's Paul's heart here. They're, the Philippians are like their spiritual, his spiritual children. And so he just wants them to be consistent, to have integrity, that their lives would be worthy of the gospel. He desires to hear that his children are united in the truth. United in the truth. Listen to it. He says, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. And what's interesting about this is that word, that phrase, standing firm, stecco in the original language, it means to be stationary and in a fixed position. And it carries the idea that the Philippians, and we too, are not to be moved back and forth by the winds and the waves of the culture around us, the ideologies and philosophies of the world, we'd be anchored in the truth. We'd have one mind. We're to grow up together. This is a military term. And so what it pictures is soldiers that are on the front lines of battle and they are holding their position together. And that's appropriate when you consider the fact that every church that's ever existed is under spiritual attack. There is spiritual warfare that is taking place. So what are they standing firm in? It says, one spirit with one mind. What is that? One spirit, pneuma. It is the internal power or drive within a person. It is unity in purpose. It is basically that they are unified in what they live for. And he just said, we live for Christ and the advancement of his gospel. We live for the honor of Christ, chapter 1, verse 20. The advancement of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. Continued progress and joy in the faith, chapter 1, verse 25. That's what we live for. That's a worthy tattoo right there, if you're going to do it. We're to have one mind, this is a parallel expression to one spirit, meaning they go together, one mind. The word is suke. It's where, where we get the word psyche or psychology. It is also the word for soul. It's in a church should have one mind, one suki. This conveys the entirety of ourselves, not just one segment of our thoughts. It's intellect, affections, and will. And so what is he saying? To live a life worthy of the gospel, a church must embrace the same convictions. That they must stand firmly on the authority of the Word of God. That they must have the same allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they must share the same mission, the advancement of His gospel. Not all doing the same things, but doing different things to work together so that the ball goes down the field, so to speak. It's likely that Paul emphasized this need for unity with the Philippians because it seems that there was some division there. If you go to chapter 4, you look at verse 2. Paul says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
I love it. He doesn't just say that they should just agree. They should, you know what, just agree. He says agree in the Lord. Agree in what the Lord said. And so this might also be why Paul mentioned the elders and the deacons, chapter 1, verse 1, because they're first and foremost to work together for the promotion of unity within the body, not only them, but starting with them, no doubt, and as the rest of the church, we work together for unity in the truth. One thing that's extremely important to keep in mind, especially in this day and age, is that we don't have to create unity. We don't create unity. That's what Jesus does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we don't create it. So what's our role in unity in a church? To maintain it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 3 says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, listen, this sounds familiar, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, walk worthy of the gospel, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The way we maintain unity is not compromising the truth of God's Word. I'm about to make that very, very clear here in a second. It's not compromising. It is patiently, with all humility, with gentleness, pursue one mind by submitting to the Word of God as your ultimate authority. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, Paul says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. What does he mean by that? Having the mind of Christ means through the renewal of our minds by being in the Word of God and having our minds transformed, not conformed by the culture around us, that we share the same purpose, one spirit, to advance the gospel. That we share the same perspective, one mind. That we view life as Christ and death as gain. That we view our purpose as advancing the gospel in community, not in isolation. Unity is important. It's also important to, to acknowledge this. God hates division. He hates it. He hates the divisive person. Listen to the scriptures. Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. That's like worse than hatred. That's, that's taking it one step further and saying, this is, I, hate is not a strong enough word, and this is what God hates. He says it. Number one, haughty eyes. That's pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And here's number seven. And one who sows discord among brothers. It's a divisive person. This is a numeric literary device that presents a list of six things. And it's easy to agree with the first six that, oh yeah, God certainly hates those who shed innocent blood and, and the like. 
But then he, he adds in this seventh one, which get, gets overlooked sometimes. A divisive person. God hates a divisive person. One who in the church is sowing discord. He's just creating division. Or she's creating division among the brotherhood. Hates him. Why? Because a divisive person destroys the church. It splits them in half. It splits them in several portions. And, and God loves his church. And he doesn't want his bride to be cut in two. He doesn't want her to be quartered. He likes her just as she is, all together, one body, united, with Christ as the head. And I want you to notice the, the close connection between a divisive person and a deceptive person. Look at Romans 16, 17 through 18, or just listen to me and hold your place. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. Why? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Who do they serve? He'll get to that. They do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So they serve themselves. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So who are they approaching? Those who are maybe a little less familiar with the Scriptures. Those who are maybe a little younger in their walk in, in the faith. And then it says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see how this is connected? Divisive person, deceptive person, the devil himself. Ultimately, it's a, it's a satanic thing to do within the church to be unreasonably divisive. On the flip side, God loves true unity. Unity in truth. Psalm 133.1 Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. It's not just pleasant to God, it's pleasant for us, right? When we're, when we're having unity and harmony, when there's unity and harmony in your families, isn't that wonderful? It is. God takes joy in it. We take joy in it as a church body. God loves true unity in His church. Why? Because God is Trinity. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there has never been disunity among the triune God. And there is no lack of truth within the Trinity. This is God. And this is what He desires for us. This is, this is quite profound. This is what he has revealed that he desires for us. John 17, verse 21. Listen to this. Jesus' prayer. I pray that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why, Jesus? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So unity and truth in the church is not just good to God. It's not just good for us. It's good for the watching world that's looking at us. That's true unity they have at Christ Redeemer Church in McKinney. That should be our aim. Unity and the truth, it actually contributes to our evangelization efforts in this area. Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop uh, wrote a book called Compelling Community, and our staff is reading that together right now. In chapter 2, on page 39, I came across this, and this is really, really excellent. 
they quote, they, he starts by quoting an Episcopal bishop in Virginia around 2004. And this is the quote from the Episcopal bishop. I want to be clear, this is not Mark Dever saying this. Okay. The Episcopal bishop in Virginia in 2004 said this, Heresy is better than schism. Heresy is better than schism. No, it is not. No, it absolutely is not. Because you know what schism means? That's a weird word. It means division. Heresy, error is better than schism. What is he saying? He's saying unity at all costs. At the cost of doctrine. At the cost of the gospel is what he's saying. I'm going to read the rest of the paragraph. His comments targeted Bible-believing conservatives who were leaving the denomination after the consecration of a gay bishop. In many ways, that has been the rallying cry of the theologically liberal mainline church through much of the last century. In response, evangelicals sometimes view all calls for unity as the back door to liberalism, which I can understand. But this is what he says. He, he, he says this. He says, but according to the New Testament, both assumptions are misguided. Unity and truth are symbiotic. They go together. That's Mark's point, right? They cannot, he says, exist without each other. So we've compartmentalized unity and truth so often, and they're not meant to be segmented. They're not separated. They're together. We're unified in what? Truth. Or we're unified in error. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says, Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So I just want to be really clear. I'm, I'm not wearing the same team jersey as a Catholic. I'm not, because we, we have different Gospels. The, the Catholic Church believes that, that one is saved by Faith plus works. The Protestant church, we, we're part of a Protestant church. We, we believe that that's, that's false gospel. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that when someone's truly saved, they'll bear fruit over time as God sanctifies them, beginning with the fruit of genuine repentance and faith in Christ. But we're not wearing the team jersey, the same team jersey as Catholics. I, I do not have unity or fellowship with a Unitarian Universalist church. It's not a church. Why? They deny the Trinity. It's a bad start. And then they go further. They actually believe that, that all people go to heaven and that no one goes to hell. And that goes straight against Jesus' word. So we, don't, we have no fellowship with them. We are, we are to called to go and witness to them. We're called to reason with them that they would repent and come to Christ so that they could go to heaven and be with him forever. Similarly, I, I cannot in good conscience partner in ministry with an extremely liberal Methodist or Episcopal church or any church that has a distorted view of gender and sexuality. Why? Because without fail, their false doctrine of man and sin always leads to a distorted gospel message. Always. Without fail. we got 2,000 years of her church history to, to see that that has played itself out. They do so because it's an easier pill to swallow. 
when Christ has commanded us to repent of all sin, including all sexual immorality. It's not that we hate our neighbors who are struggling with same-sex attraction. We love them, and we need to go full of compassion to our neighbor and plead with them to to have their mind changed, to see God's design, to see God's goodness, and, and love them and call them to repent and believe in Christ and receive his free mercy as a gift. Sometimes people say, you're being too dogmatic. First thing I say is, go go look up the definition of dogma. Secondly, too dogmatic about what? Well, they say, well, you're too dogmatic. You need to just keep it about the gospel. And then I, I inevitably ask them, well, which gospel are you talking about? I mean, are we talking about the one true gospel? Because the gospel that I love and that we sing about and that we teach about is in accordance with those scriptures. That's what 1 Corinthians 5, 3 says. It is the gospel in accordance with the scriptures. Meaning, it was not just prophesied of in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. It is comprised of sound doctrine from both testaments that have clear teaching about God, about man, about sin, about Christ, about the proper response to Christ and what he's done on that cross, about salvation, about condemnation, about heaven, about hell, and many, many more things. So we don't compromise on salvation issues, friends. We cannot. We have to stay united in the truth. Too often, pastors, they're unfairly charged with being dogmatic and and divisive over doctrine when, friends, they're just desperately trying to keep their church united on truth. That's the task God gave them. And so with all compassion in their heart and and desperate proclamation of the word, they're trying to do just that. And we need to remember that the word of God is divisive. It divides truth from error. It's described in Ephesians 6.17 as a sword It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And let me read to you a prophecy from Isaiah. This blew my mind this week, quite frankly. Isaiah 49, 1-6. through This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. This is how it relates to the, the Word of God and the sword that is divisive, that does divide. Verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. For the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that all Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel He says this, I'm taking it a step further. I'm not just gathering Israel through the sword of the word. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations. Then my salvation shall reach to the end of the earth. 
So let me give the spark notes on what we just read. Number one, Jesus' mouth is like a sharp sword. It speaks the truth. It, it divides truth from error. We need to know it. We need to know it. We need to know His voice so we would not be led astray. Number two, the truth that Christ preached, it brought people together. It was gathering people. It was bringing Jacob back. It was gathering and uniting a people of Israel to God and to one another. It was uniting them. Number three, their unity in the truth was meant to serve as a light for the nations so that both Jew and Gentile the true Israel of God would be saved. Profound. Now hold on to that. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, 34. This is Jesus speaking. And he's saying, that's me. I'm that guy. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a what? Sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be of uh, those of his own household. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He says, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, my words, my voice, my doctrine, my truth, my teachings, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here's the reality. God is gathering a people. He is gathering a people through the proclamation of his word his word is divisive. We don't need to be more divisive or offensive. We don't need to do that. We need to really, you know, look in the mirror and, and practice gentleness, but not lose any boldness. We need to be compassionate in our hearts and speak the truth in love and expect opposition. There is good news. The good news is that Matthew seven twenty four says, everyone who hears his words, these words of mine, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And praise God for the churches that are standing firm on the rock of Jesus Christ and His words. There are some areas of doctrine and theology that are just less clear. It just is. I mean, and there, there are no present danger in some of these things for the gospel to be distorted. And so in those cases, church, we have an opportunity to patiently and all humility extend forbearance with one another so that we can advance the gospel together. There's going to be opportunities in your community group time. There's going to be opportunities in men's and women's fellowship where you go, I don't know about that. And really what you should do is that week you should say, you know what, maybe we disagree on this. I don't think this is a first order issue. Why don't this week we go out and share the same gospel that we love and proclaim and embrace, right? As we continue to learn and maybe we'll align one day before Christ comes, maybe not. But this isn't as big of a concern. When is it a big concern? 
when it impacts our understanding of salvation or when it erodes the foundation of the precious gospel message that we preach and we sing and we we love. And when it does either of those two things, we don't play games. We call it out as falsehood and we stand firm together on the truth. Only when a church is standing together on the truth of Christ's word can they truly begin striving together for the advancement of the gospel. Which brings me to my second point. I'm going to have to run through these. Thank you for your gracious patience with me. To live worthy of the gospel as a church is to be striving together for the advancement of the gospel. It takes effort. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, not alone, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This should be a passionate striving in our church for the gospel to get out of this church and into the community around us. The word striving here has the main root of sunathleo, sunathleo. What does that sound like? It's where we get the word athlete, sunathleo. It's where we get the word athletic. And so it, it has the picture of someone who's competing with maximum effort, like a professional athlete effort, and striving for the gospel to go out. This is not a casual or weak or lazy or apathetic term. It's exerting effort. Unfortunately, much of professing Christianity and evangelicalism has no acquaintance with this word. They have completely no experience with striving whatsoever. It's, it's just consumerism. Come to church, leave. Hopefully I feel a little better. But this is maximum effort that the church is to be putting forward together, doing different things, the same mission. It's to be done communally, side by side, It's to be done faithfully, meaning they're striving for the faith of the gospel. The faith. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, wish we could have just talked about our common salvation together and just had some fellowship. Then he says this, I found it necessary appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Fight for it. Strive for it is what he's saying. He's saying, you believe it just fine, but you're not doing anything with it. It's not helping anyone in Philippi or in McKinney. You've got to do something with it. Acts 2 verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? So that they would better be equipped to preach the true gospel in accordance with the Scriptures. Titus 2 verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We're to do this fearlessly. Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When lost people who oppose the gospel see a church who are standing firm on it and are striving in it, it causes them to fear. It terrifies them. How? 
they start wondering, maybe this group of religious fanatics that I've comfortably mocked for so long alongside the rest of the world, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right about Jesus. Maybe, maybe they truly are right about eternal life, that it is only through Christ alone that you can be saved. Maybe I'm wrong. My way has not been working out. It's been more and more destructive. Maybe these Christians are reasonable in what they believe. That's what it does. Who are the opponents, though, that they're dealing with in Philippi? It's not just the unbelieving Gentiles that were hostile towards the gospel in Philippi at that time. It was false teachers within the church. They're called Judaizers. They were promoting a works-based faith, a works-based salvation. Philippians 2, verse, or 3, verse 2 and 3 says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All, what they were doing is they are saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. And Paul was saying, no, that's not true. By faith alone are you saved. Not a result of works. The Judaizers were attempting to drag believers back into the Mosaic Covenant. They were, they were attempting to bring them back, and God was wanting them to strive forward in the gospel, the true gospel. By faith alone are we saved, in Christ alone. So our striving together for the gospel, it, is, it has two sides to it. On one side, it is a sign of the condemnation of the world around us, and on the other side, it is a sign of our legitimate salvation from God. It's by grace alone. And the word striving reminds us that gospel advancement is not easy work. It is difficult. And when we engage in it, there is opposition. There is suffering. Which brings me to my third and final point. That living worthy of the gospel means that we are standing together we are striving together, and friends, we are suffering together. Not just generally because we're in this fallen world, but specifically because of our identification and love with Christ. Suffering together. This is the first message on suffering together. This is the first thing I preached when I visited this church. It was in 2 Timothy. And if you don't feel it now, you, you need to understand it's coming. More and more it's coming. This world is more and more hostile to us. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. First thing I want you to see is the link between faith and suffering. Belief and and suffering. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him. But that means that you should believe in Him. It was granted, that faith. So if you're a Christian here today, that means that salvation was granted to you by God. You aren't saved because of you. You needed salvation because of you, but you were not saved because of you. Salvation is that free gift given by God himself. Faith itself is a gift. 
Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what he says. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And syntactically, he's referring to the faith and the grace. He is saying that the faith, you can't even boast in that. That's why he continues in verse 9 and he says, it's not a result of works, not even your faith. So that, why? So that no one may boast. This should humble us. There's not a single one of us that mustered up faith. It was given to us freely by God. So it should give us compassion for the lost as well. We shouldn't look at the lost world and mock them for how lost they are, for their lostness. We should instead mourn for their spiritual blindness. They are in need of God opening their eyes. We should pray for that. And we should marvel at the fact that God opened up the eyes of our hearts. What a grace. Amazing grace. We're not just granted faith, we're, we're granted suffering for Christ. And he actually says it, it's, it's granted to us. It is a gift. Just as faith is a gift, suffering is a gift from Christ. I don't know if you've ever thank it, thanked Christ and said, thank, thank you for the suffering uh, in your name. Lord, thank you for that. But it is a gift. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Jesus communicated this just as clear. That whoever follows him will suffer. And that's why he encouraged people to count the cost of discipleship before they started following him down the road. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, I want you to think about this yourself. Are there people in this world that hate you because of Christ? And Jesus speaks to you and he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Don't take it personally. This is what he's saying. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They'd embrace you. Two arms. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world to be a citizen of heaven, therefore the world hates you. Because you're different. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word they will also keep yours. And the flip side of that, if they don't like my word, they won't like your word because you're preaching my word. Do you all see how this is connected? United in the truth and suffering for the truth? I think this is a reminder for, for us this morning. If you're experiencing zero pushback in this culture, zero pushback in this world, you're probably not sticking your neck out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is an observable, historical, biblical fact that when you do, the world will seek to cut it off. And so I'm not here exhorting you as your pastor this morning saying, go out individually and stick out your neck for the gospel. I'm saying, let's do it together. 
in community. Let's be united in the truth. Let's go out and proclaim the truth and let's suffer for the truth. We have the gift of faithful men and women in the past, like Paul, who have done this faithfully. That's why Paul writes in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear about it that I still have in Rome, in house arrest. When did they see it? When he was in Philippi. In in this conflict, what, what does he mean by conflict? The word is agon, which literally means, is the word where we get agony, There's suffering. It's a conflict of suffering. But he was suffering in Philippi when he planted this church. He was suffering when in his second missionary journey. You can read all about it. Acts chapter 16. But he was suffering. He was arrested. He was mobbed. He was beaten. He was thrown into prison. He was in the stocks. And the Philippians, they saw it. I mean, they were there. They were public witnesses to his conflict. His suffering. And they're hearing of his suffering in Rome. He has not stopped suffering for Christ. He's not done yet being faithful to Christ. Jesus made it explicitly clear that, that suffering would be a part of Paul's life in particular, almost as a type for us to look at when we open our Bibles and go, okay, my, my day hasn't been that bad. I can experience a little exclusion because of Christ. I can experience a little mockery because of Christ or rejection because of Christ. They're not throwing me in prison yet. They're not beating me for it yet. Acts 9, verse 16, Jesus literally says at the beginning of his conversion, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then what did Paul do? He suffered for it. And then, he, and then he told Timothy and others that they're going to suffer for it. And then they suffered for it. And then I'm sure Timothy passed along to other pastors that he was raising up in his congregation and they suffered for it as a community. And I'm telling you, as your pastor this morning, you will suffer for the gospel if you stand firm in the truth and you strive together with the true gospel. You will. You just will. And if you don't, you won't. And Jesus says on that day, all who are ashamed of me, I too will be ashamed of. But all who are unashamed of me in the gospel, well done, good and faithful servant. You may lose your job. You may lose your relationship with a family member or close friend. I don't know what it will cost you, but it will cost us everything if we're faithful to Christ and we suffer for Him. A gift privilege. And no matter how kind and gentle and gracious we are to others, and we need to be, we're not debating people. We're going out to win souls. But no matter how pastoral you are with them, no matter how full of compassion you are, if you speak the truth, you will be rejected, you will be mocked, you will be excluded, you will be persecuted, and they might take your life. I don't know. But you're not alone. Not if we stick together. The question is not if we'll suffer. The question is when will it happen? And how will we respond to it? I'll close with this. Will you be shocked? Well, you can't be after this morning. 
You just can't. But maybe, maybe for a moment, maybe a split second, you're a little surprised. Whoa. A little pushback because I just, you know, dropped the word Jesus? Yes, sir. And the scriptures say, don't be. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. I'll tell you right now, it's strange if it's not happening in your life. That's weird. Will you be frightened or afraid? Maybe a little. But Jesus says this, don't be. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus is not talking about the devil. He's talking about God himself. Will you be angry when suffering comes for your proclamation of Christ? I would just say don't be. Because the scriptures say in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Will you be saddened when suffering comes on the, because of your identification with Christ? Don't be. Rejoice. That's, that's our theme word as we walk through this letter of Philippians. 1 Peter says it in context. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus uses the word rejoice in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Acts 5, 41. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us. I mean, help us, Lord. We need it. We desperately need it. Help us to live worthy of the gospel by standing together, by striving together, by suffering together for the truth. Unite us on the truth. Sanctify us in the truth. Help us to rejoice in the truth and to rejoice in the community of truth that you've given us here, especially in those seasons where the mockery is greater, there's more rejection, there's more exclusion, and the persecution is hotter. Let us rejoice that we have you and we have one another and help us to continue to worship with joy in the midst of suffering. Amen.